when you read the Bible and you uncover those truths, you know what it's like? It's like, all right. And um, it's great to have that ah experience in reading the Bible text. As something is revealed to you like never before. I've got to say, the more I study the Bible, the more I study to teach it or just study it on my own for my personal conviction or quiet time, the more excited I get about it. I never lose. If anything, I gain a hunger and a thirst to know it and to learn more about it. I never lose that draw or that pull to understand God's Word, but especially to understand the mind of God Himself through the Bible. Not just to understand about God or about this book, but to see the mind and the heart of God as revealed in the Scripture. It's wonderful. Now, if you are ever planning to go with us to Israel, and I probably shouldn't preface it that way because I'll be asked, when is your next tour to Israel? I don't know. I'm going to call and set a date. But we get on a bus, and the first day, after taking you to Caesarea, going up the coast, and then at Haifa, and if you've got a map, you can follow along, at Haifa, that little outcropping up north, we take a road inland and have a Bible study overlooking the valley of Armageddon. Then after that, we take a little windy road up to Nazareth, from Nazareth toward Nain, and from Nain up to Capernaum. We can cover all of that in one day by bus. It's a small country. On foot, it would be much different. And we're going to read about some of these places in our Bible study tonight, hopefully, if I can hurry up the pace and get to it in chapter 7. But as you get past Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, it's very hilly. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And this time of the year when we usually go, it's green. It's starting to dry up a little bit because it's getting warmer, but it's very green. And we love to take the people off the bus and walk down a little dirt road off on a little hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee where probably Jesus gave the sermon that we are reading in chapter 6 of Luke, the Sermon on the Mount, with a commanding view of the eastern side of the Golan Heights, the Sea of Galilee in front of us, Tiberias off to the right, a little bit south, Capernaum off to our left, a beautiful and fertile area of Israel. Jesus taught so many of his truths outside. That's why when we go to these places and our tour guide says, would you like to go to this church or that church? We go, no. We don't want to go to any church. We can, go to, we can visit any country to go to a church. We're not interested in seeing the inside of a building that man made. Take us out to the country where Jesus hung out with the disciples. That's what we want to see, the countryside, the land. And we've been quite an enigma to the tour guides in Israel who think that, well, you bring a Christian group over there, you just show them this church and that church and this stained glass window and that statue and they'll all be happy. And they say, now you guys are a different breed. You want to see Israel. You want to see the land. It was out in this beautiful natural setting that Jesus taught so many of his truths using the natural wonders, using the sky, the sea the flowers of the field, the grass which comes up and withers quickly as the sun blights it in the Mideast area. Now, 
This Sermon on the Mount that we're reading, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, is probably a shorter version of Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's a condensed version. Some think it's altogether a different scene. I happen to think it's a condensed version. It's Luke's version of the same sermon, but it's in a condensed form. And he's taken select things to share with us. And so in verse 17, uh, just to kind of backtrack a bit, He came down with them and stood on a level place. Another rendering of that same verse is a plateau in a mountainous area, a hilly area, which would fit Galilee perfectly and would line up with Matthew's account, Jesus took them onto a mountain, that is a shallow hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples. Now Jesus is teaching not the crowds. He's teaching his own. These are kingdom ethics. The Sermon on the Mount does not have a general, broad application for all people. And as we mentioned, I think, that you might hear an unbeliever say, well, I live my life by the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, really? If you ever catch one saying that, ask them where it is in the Bible. See if they even know what chapters the Sermon on the Mount is. And then ask them to tell you, well, tell me, what is the Sermon on the Mount say? And then quote to them the last verse of the Sermon on the Mount as given In Matthew's account, chapter 5 and 6 and 7, where he says, Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then ask them, so you try to live by the Sermon on the Mount, huh? And as you read the Sermon on the Mount, though it has kingdom ethics, you quickly see that it condemns the average person, even the average Christian. It brings you to your knees and you realize you cannot live the Christian life apart from a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You come and you say, this is impossible. And God says, right on. Now humble yourself. Let me live my life through you. Let me work through you. Be my vessel, my instrument. So Jesus teaches, not the crowd, though he had numbers of people following him, he turns toward his disciples. By the way, wherever Jesus went, he had a crowd, but not all the people in that crowd were there for worship. Some of them were there to see what they could get out of him. Crowds should never impress the Christian, which they often do. Oh, how many people come to your church? Whoa, wow. Not necessarily a good thing. Large crowds don't mean really anything in and of themselves. There are many large cultic movements that draw vast crowds. There are many aberrant religions. The largest religion, the fastest growing religion on earth is not Christianity, it's Islam. So growth numerically is not necessarily the indication of the blessing or the hand of God. In fact, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed that grows and this abnormally large branch 
from the mustard bush grows up and the fowls of the air come and lodge within its branches. Many birds, many fowls have lodged within the branches of Christendom. And sometimes the growth has been anything but pure. And so Jesus had people following him for mixed motives. Some to worship, some to listen, others out of curiosity. Others because Jesus gave free meals on occasions and would touch people and heal people. Now I realize that in every church there's a mixed multitude. I love to be able to say tonight everybody in this auditorium is following Jesus Christ with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But I know that's not true. I think Jesus accurately painted a picture of every assembly when he gave the parable of the four soils in Matthew chapter 13. The seed that is sown in various types of hearts. Some people hear it and immediately they close their heart, they close their mind, they go, that's not for me, I don't want to hear it. I won't let it penetrate. Jesus said, the enemy comes and snatches away the seed that was sown on the soil. Then others hear and they go, ooh, that's exciting. Yeah, I buy into that. Right on, I'm going to get into this stuff. And they get very emotional, very excited, but it's very short-lived. It's just emotions above the surface. There's no roots. And when the sun of persecution and the heat of trials come, they wither up and they vanish, and you don't see them around anymore. Others make a superficial commitment, but the world competes for their time and their energy. The entertainment of the world chokes up the seed within the heart. They see this, they hear that, they want to get involved in this, and the Bible, Christianity, Bible study takes second, third, fourth, fifth, and sometimes just laid back completely. But then Jesus even said that there are those who hear, and with a good and joyful heart, they receive the word, and it brings forth fruit. Now, I think tonight we have in this sampling of people, and I'm not, I, I can't say who's who, but there probably are all those types of soils represented in this auditorium, probably in every church. Of those that are bearing forth fruit, not everybody is bearing forth a hundredfold fruit. We're growing at different stages, at different paces. Some are bearing forth 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And God is patient with you to bear forth the fruit. But it all depends on how you receive it, what your heart does with it, and if you continue in Him and abide in Him to obey His Word. So, the Sermon on the Mount is for His disciples. Um, the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount, we touched on last time. And that's in verses 27 through 36. I say that's the pinnacle because it speaks about the highest form of love, loving people who don't love you back. Loving the unlovely. It's one thing to love an attractive person. It's another thing to love a nice person. But, but what about a creep? What about your enemies? That's the highest form of love. That's Christian love. That separates the men from the boys. Oh, I remember back in the 60s, we sung and we talked about love. Was, Peace, dude. Love, man. And, we, and, and it, they were just words. They were concepts. Oh, we had this little euphoric utopia that we all thought about. 
Oh, we got to preach love. We got to talk about love. And of course, the Beatles came out with the song, All You Need Is Love. And part of their song says, you know, love is all you need. And they said, it's easy. All you need is love. It's easy. All you need is love. It's easy? Yeah, it's easy to love lovely people. Is it easy to love your enemies? When you love your enemies and you love the unlovely, you're in the big leagues. You're not in little league any longer. That's the highest form of love. Now, I think you ought to make a distinction between liking a person and loving a person. Like involves an emotion. Love involves your will. I don't think Jesus said you have to like everybody. I think that's unrealistic. I don't like everybody. I'll be honest with you. There's people who, because of their personality, I don't like. But I'm commanded to love them, to act away toward them against my will as a choice of lifestyle. And that's difficult. I can do it because God wouldn't give you a command without giving you the ability to pull it off. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you, Jesus said. That doesn't always involve an emotion. It involves an act of your will. Now that's the highest form of love. That's the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. So you can have a bumper sticker, talk about loving humanity. So, what about your neighbor? Begin with your neighbor. I think it was Linus in that Peanuts cartoon. Is that still around? <laughs> Shows you where I've been. And Linus said, I, I read years ago, he said, I love mankind. It's just the people I can't stand. <laughs> it's one thing to tout your love for the world and we should just get past the differences and love one another. But it's another thing to really love your neighbor, the people involved who are all around you. Now, I just want to comment and say where Jesus in verse 28 talks about praying. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. If you have any bitterness in your heart tonight toward any human being, the quickest way to kill that bitterness is to pray for them. It's awfully difficult for you to continually hold a grudge against someone when you're always bringing that person up before the throne of God. Lord, I love you, I worship you, and to pray for that person will steal away the seed of bitterness that is in your heart. So Jesus did that not only for our enemies' sake, but also for our sake. Love your enemies. Now, we get to verse 37 where we left off last time. We pick it up tonight, and this corresponds to chapter 7, verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel. The last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, the fuller version given by Matthew. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will men put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And then he spoke a parable. Have you ever had an opinion, 
shared a conviction, stood up for a truth, and the scripture that people will come back with you at you with is this scripture. If you make any kind of evaluation at all about someone or something, oh, don't judge. Jesus said, judge not. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you can't make any critical judgment about a person's activity or belief system. It does not mean that. Perish that thought forever. If it meant that, then we have a conflict in the scripture. Because in Matthew's version of this, where he says, judge not, you will be not judged, in the same breath, Jesus says, don't give what is holy to the dogs, or don't cast your pearls before pigs. Now, it's obvious. How are you going to be able to distinguish between a spiritual dog and spiritual swine if you don't make any kind of discerning judgment? You have to make some kind of an evaluation. In John's Gospel, Jesus commanded you to judge. He said, judge ye a righteous judgment. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, confront a sinning brother with his sin. If he does not respond, tell it to the church. If he doesn't respond to the church, kick him out of the fellowship. Well, it's obvious you have to make some kind of critical judgment, do you not? Some kind of an evaluation. What then does Jesus mean? He's speaking here, and Matthew actually does us a favor by adding a full-orbed version. He adds the word condemn. The idea is a hypocritical, self-righteous judgment where your eyes are blinded to your own sin and you're just pointing the finger as a hypocrite. That's the obvious context of this chapter where he talks about trying to pull out a speck out of your brother's eye when you've got this huge, you know, four by eight sticking out of your own. That's the kind of judgment that Jesus is speaking about. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Okay, what do you do if others make an evaluation toward you? Let's, you know, we often look at it from the perspective of us making the evaluation, us making the criticism, uh, us making the judgment, what to do, what not to do. What about when you're evaluated? What about when you're judged? This is where I think we need extra discernment. Because none of us like to be confronted. None of us like people to tell us what's wrong, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And you are blessed if you have a close relationship with someone who in that relationship of love and intimacy holds you accountable. Now, what do you do if someone that you know and love levels a criticism toward you? You can shut the door completely and say, I don't receive that. It's negative, brother. Or you can make an evaluation. You can pray about it. There's an old Arab proverb. It says, if one person calls you a donkey, pay no attention to it. If five people call you a donkey, go buy yourself a saddle. <laughs> now, if... As an example, I come up with a view by reading a paragraph of Scripture, and I'm convinced that this view is right. 
And then I go and I read one commentator, and he has a different view. And then I read ten other commentaries, and all of them share exactly his same view. Then they're all against my view. I'd be arrogant to say, they're all wrong, and I'm the only right one. At least I would want to work through the language. I'd want to discuss it with somebody who uh, may have a different viewpoint and, and try to find out what's going on. It would be arrogant for me to say they're all wrong. So, you've got people in the church that every time Chuck Colson writes a book or Hank Hanegraaff writes a book or uh, Dave Hunt writes a book, they go, oh, there's those heresy hunters always pointing the finger, always critical. I thank God for them writing those books, keeping the church in check. Some of these men I know personally, and I know the hearts of love and the right motivation that they have in writing those books. And the church owes a debt to good theologians who dare to call a spade a spade. It's not what it means here when it says don't judge. And it's arrogant. I mean, if I had Hank Hanegraaff or Walter Martin or Chuck Colson or Dave Hunt all writing books about my theology... I think I would seek them out and want to change it. The only reason I would say, no, I'm going to hold on to this, is perhaps because of the financial revenue that I'm getting in my position by those that I've duped. At least I'd want to discuss it. I'd want to go public with it. If I'm sharing something publicly, and I've got guys like that that are holding me accountable... And reciprocating publicly, I at least want to have a public discussion to air these differences for the body of Christ's sake. Unfortunately, that's not happening today. And these men that write these books, like Hannah Graff and Colson and Hunt, are not judging censoriously, self-righteously. They are inspecting the tree for its fruit. And I've often said, fine, don't call it judging, call it fruit inspecting. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. And if you look at the fruit and it's rotten, it's not unloving to say, rotten fruit on that tree. It's loving. It's loving because every time you stand up for the truth, you know there's going to be people who are going to come against you. And they'll share all sorts of emotional ideas of why you shouldn't do this, but they won't be able to back it up with a solid exegesis from the Scripture. All right, let's get into the context. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? Now the idea is, here's you, got, you have a person judging everybody, self-righteously, hypocritically. Probably he's thinking about the Pharisees when he's sharing this, who feel that they themselves are competent leaders of the truth, but they are blind themselves. Being blind, they're not good guides. Now, I have heard that blind people have excellent senses of direction. Because of their handicap, they've made up for it with an excellent sense of direction. Their brain is just compensated. However, those who are blind will probably not be hired to pilot an airplane or to be a guide on a wilderness experience. It wouldn't make much sense because though they have a sense of direction, there's enough stuff in the way that would, it's going to get everybody in trouble. So you've got these Pharisees, and they're the ones pointing the fingers at everybody. Yet they themselves are in sin, 
And it's an unrighteous judgment because they're not looking at their own problems, their own sin. They're just the gospel Gestapo, so to speak. They're just sin sniffers looking at everybody else's faults. They're the ones that have this big beam in their eyes and they're looking for specks. Jesus mentions that. He says they'll both fall into the ditch. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Now, Jesus called the scribes, the Pharisees, blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Then, in John's Gospel, the um, ninth chapter, there's a man in Jerusalem who's blind from birth, physically blind. Uh, Jesus touches him, uh, does something very interesting, takes mud, spits in it, rubs it around, puts it in his eyes, and says, tell the guy to go wash. Because goes to the pool of Siloam, washes off the mud, he can see perfectly. The Pharisees hear about it, they go to him, who healed you? Tell us about this man. I don't know about him. All I know is that I was blind and now I can see. The Pharisees found Jesus and they had a conversation. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who are blind may see and that those who see may become blind. The Pharisees understood what he was saying. He said, Are you saying we're blind also? Jesus said, If you were to say you're blind, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. In other words, if you were incapable of seeing, you'd you'd have no fault. But because you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Loosely paraphrased, yes, you're as blind as a spiritual bat. And you're trying to point out everybody else's sin. They had just excommunicated this blind man, now healed, out of the synagogue and out of the temple. Here's a blind man who could see, in contrast to spiritually blind people who thought they could see and couldn't. Okay. Uh, When he uh, shared verse 41, I bet he had an audible laugh from the crowd. That is a joke. It's the the whole idea of, hey, brother, I I see something wrong uh, in your eye, a little speck. You've got this huge telephone pole hanging out of your eye. Yeah, here. Don't move. Let me, let me get it. Oh, I bumped you with my telephone pole. Excuse me. Let me turn my head a little bit. It is a laughable analogy. He's showing how ridiculous it is to live a hypocritical life and try to point people to spiritual truth. Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. That's why I think the sin of the critic and the gossiper is worse than the sin that they tout around and spread around. A person may have sinned. That's bad. Maybe he had some kind of a business slip-up, sexual misconduct. It's bad. It's tragic. But then to go around and spread it by gossip and a sense of rumor, 
acting, well, I'm self-righteous, this person did this, it's worse. It's worse. Stop and see the sin that you're spreading around. And once you've repented and humbled yourself in that sin, then in humility go and approach that brother or sister. First, remove the plank from your own eye that you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. How easy it is, is it not, to see our sins on somebody else but not in our own lives? We're blind to our own sins. We see them in other people. We turn on television. We see something and go, oh, that's horrible. A lot of times, those things are going on in our own hearts, our own lives. Remember, David did this. Slept with Bathsheba, committed adultery. And then the prophet Nathan came to him and told him that story about that little sheep that was taken. And man was rich and he had a bunch of sheep. And he took the guy's sheep who had one little lamb stole him and killed him and cooked him and ate him, David said, this man will surely die. Nathan said, you're the man. You've just seen your sin in an analogy on somebody else, and it looks so dark, David. You're the guy I'm talking about. You're the guy who stole somebody else's sheep, somebody else's wife you slept with. But you can really see your sin now, can't you, David, as your sin is now on somebody else. Take the plank first out of your eye so that you can see the speck. Now, we often do see specks in people around us, and uh, we notice them. Yeah, I notice so-and-so is doing this and that. And at first, it seems like we're being kind to point out those specks. It's my job. I'm I'm a speck pointer. I find splinters in people's lives. After all, I'm a Christian. And it may seem like an act of kindness that you're performing to point out specks in people's lives. But it's actually a cheap way to feel superior. When, if indeed, you've got a load of sin and misgivings in your own personal life and in your heart. It's just a cheap way to make yourself feel better in contrast because you've now seen somebody else. And that's what Jesus is speaking about. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Ever see a person who's a brother... Christian, neat guy, put him in a tough situation. They'll say a few expletives. They'll curse. And then they'll say, that's not really in me. Sure it is. If it wasn't in you, it wouldn't have come out of you. You've just revealed your heart. And the trial has revealed your heart. The pinch has really revealed what's inside. Then he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things which I say? Verbal commitment without a lifestyle. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. 
He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. When the floods arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. In Israel, the summers, well, they're pretty intense. They begin about now, and if you go to Galilee even, it can be well over 100 degrees, 105. Go down to the Dead Sea. It's not unusual to have up to 130 degrees, uh, even 135, it's been known, down by the Dead Sea. After all, it's 1,290 feet below the level of the sea. This area receives no rain in the summer. The wadis, they're called, translation arroyos in New Mexico, uh, become sandy, dried out, until the wintertime. In the wintertime, like our summertime, when you have lots of rains, those arroyos can fill up, those wadis can fill up instantly, and a surge of water can pour through them. Jesus' analogy is a person who would build his house sloppily versus someone who with diligence would dig deep. You could uh, build two houses side by side. They both look great. Outwardly, you couldn't tell the difference. One is built on that wadi, that sand. The other is built on bedrock. Somebody's dug deep, probably at a higher level. Houses look the same. There's a driveway in each, stucco, two-by-fours, windows, chimney, they look great. What's the difference? The difference is what undergirds that house, the foundation. Well, how can you tell? You can't tell until a storm comes. The storm will reveal the truth. If the house doesn't have a foundation, now you can say, hey, man, you know, why build a foundation? You know, it's dollars $30,000 more to get that plumbing in and lay that foundation. I'll just build it out there. On the it looks great, doesn't it? It's a cool-looking house. No problem. Till winter. When the storms come, that house will not stand, and great will be the fall of it. House on bedrock, because the foundation is secure, never budge. The analogy is very clear. You can have two people. You can't tell the difference. You could look at them in church. Each has a Bible. Each has a little smile on their face, a little cross that they wrote, little notes they take on the side. Outwardly, you can't tell the difference. And you can't tell the difference at all until a storm comes in their life and the storm will reveal what their life is built on. And we've all watched people in storms, haven't we? We've all watched people in very difficult times and you see what their life is really built on. Those times of testing, those times of trial, what is the stuff that their life is made out of? How do you build on the rock? You hear and you do. How do you build on the sand? You hear, you nod, and you do nothing. It's the person who obeys the Word of God that has a solid foundation in his life. Substance. Confidence. Jesus is simply contrasting two types of hearers. Not an unbeliever and a believer. Two types of believers. Let me tell you that this book is the most dangerous book on earth because it's unlike a novel 
or Entertainment Weekly or USA Today, it doesn't just give you information. It holds you into account. It holds you into account. You'll be judged by its words. I think the church of Jesus Christ is the most dangerous place to belong to. Because we come in not just for a good old time and a piece of pizza and coffee, but we hear truth. And that truth can change our lives. That truth can free our lives. You know the truth? The truth will set you free. And we can grow and we, we can become more loving and more mature. But if we just listen and we do not obey, something happens to your inward man. You develop a callus on your heart. You become impervious to God trying to penetrate your heart with the seed of the word. You harden your heart so much so that, you know, the words just come in, bounce off, come in, bounce off. And so the need for us to say, speak, Lord, your servant hears, as Samuel did, which means I'm listening that I might obey. That's why Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? At the end, he says, and the ruin of that house was great. All right, we have a few more minutes to get into chapter 7 tonight. Chapter 7 is a chapter of compassion. The Sermon on the Mount is left behind, and now Jesus, the focus of Luke is the activity of Jesus in the face of human suffering. You could call chapter 7 the compassion chapter. One of the best definitions of compassion I've ever read is this. Compassion is your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. And Jesus had compassion. He faces a sick servant in this chapter. He faces a grieving widow in this chapter. He faces a doubting prophet, John the Baptist, in prison in this chapter. And we see a heart of compassion revealed in each case. Now when he had concluded all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. That's why I think chapter 6 is a shorter account of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, because it's so close to Capernaum. And this, that mound is right there on the upslope. You can go right down into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when he came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was worthy for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. A Roman centurion is the backbone of the Roman army. That's what they were called. They watched a hundred men, as the name implies. Oh, an interesting thing, a wild thing almost, about a centurion. In the New Testament, though the Jews never really liked the Romans at all, centurions seemed to be different. Every time, almost, you read about a centurion, he's seen in a favorable light. This centurion loved the Jews enough to build them a synagogue. This centurion loved his own servant. He wasn't indifferent to the need of a slave. He loved him. He wanted to see him healed. He'd do anything. Then there was the centurion 
at the foot of the cross, whose heart was touched as he saw Jesus dying, and he said, surely this man is the Son of God. That was a centurion, a Roman centurion. Cornelius in the book of Acts, a Roman centurion, who feared God and gave alms. His heart was open to God. So for some reason, these centurions, this backbone of the Roman army, there are several instances in the New Testament where they seem to be kind and open-hearted. They were even there at the baptism, excuse me, yeah, the baptism of John the Baptist at the Jordan River. Centurions came to be baptized by John. Now, he heard about Jesus. He sent elders of the Jews. This is a very intriguing story that Jewish people would represent to Jesus a Roman centurion whom they loved. Not only did he love them, they loved him. Most of the Jews wanted nothing to do with the, Rome, uh, the Romans. Pleading with him that he would come and heal his servant. They came to Jesus. They begged him earnestly, saying, The one for whom he should do this was worthy, for he loves our nation and built us a synagogue. If you ever go with us to Capernaum in Israel, we'll show you the synagogue. Not the very synagogue he built, because the synagogue there today is around 2nd or 3rd century. But you will see the foundation stones upon which that synagogue is built. Thus you will see the very synagogue that this centurion built for the Jews at the time of Jesus. So it's fascinating to kind of go there and see uh, the area that this all happened in. And so it says Jesus went with him. So we see remarkable things about him. Number one, his love. Loved the nation, loved the Jewish people, loved their worship, built them a synagogue. We see his humility. The humility of a Roman who would send Jewish representatives to Jesus, a poor rabbi, and the centurion, when he meets Jesus, would say, oh, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my roof. That didn't sound like a Roman. You never see Romans groveling, especially before the Jewish nation. But this guy was different. He had love. He had humility. But the thing that really blew Jesus' mind was his faith. Say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. Only two places in the entire New Testament it says Jesus marveled. This is one of them. The other one is the woman from Sidon whose daughter was sick and came to Jesus. Said, Jesus, come and heal my daughter. And Jesus tested her. He said, it's not lawful to give what is holy to the dogs. The children's food and give it to the dogs. And she said, yes, but master, all I want is the scraps that fall from the table. All I want is the leftovers. I know that I'm not Jewish. I'm a Gentile from Sidon. All I want is a few scraps. Jesus marveled at her faith and said, Woman, great is your faith. Now Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith here in the Gospel of Luke. He said, uh, He marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well, who had been sick. Why did Jesus marvel at his faith? Why was his faith so great? 
greater than all those in Israel for this reason. Number one, he's a Gentile. He has a pagan background. He didn't have a background of Bible. He's a Roman dude. The only thing he knew is paganism from Rome. Now, he loved the Jews and he built them a synagogue, but he's a foreign occupant in the land. Secondly, he's a soldier, and Roman centurions were taught to be self-sufficient. This man was not self-sufficient. He humbled himself and asked Jesus to come and heal. Thirdly, there's no record that this guy followed Jesus. He probably was stationed in Capernaum. We have no record that he even heard a sermon Jesus preached. Perhaps, could it be the nobleman's son from Capernaum who came back and said, hey, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened with my son, how Jesus healed him. And just through the testimony, this man started to engender some faith. And that's all it took. And he knew who Jesus was. He wasn't just a poor rabbi. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. That's why he said, I'm not even worthy that you come under my roof. Then, and the real key to his faith is found in verse 8. I want you to notice this. For I also, the key word there is also, for I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes. He's saying, Jesus, I recognize the parallel between you and me. I'm a centurion. I snap my fingers, I speak a word, and people do stuff. Because I'm a boss, I'm an important guy. I say to somebody, go. He didn't say, well, I don't want to. He goes. And I recognize that in the same way that I can command soldiers, you can command the physical world. You can speak to disease and have it vanish from your sight. I recognize that you have that kind of authority. For I also am a man under authority and a man of authority. And I recognize that you have that authority. You don't even have to come say the word. And I know that the natural forces, including the diseases, will beckon and do your will. You just say it, and it'll happen. Jesus heard the words of a Gentile, self-sufficient centurion who believed that he had the authority to just say something and it'd be done. He's marveled. I've never seen so much faith in all of Israel. Now, while that was a compliment to him, it wasn't a compliment to Israel. Okay, let's forget about Israel for a minute and think about us. If this man, who had little or no instruction, had that much faith, how much faith should we have? We have an entire copy of God's revelation. We have the whole Bible. We have 2,000 years of church history. And yet so often, like Israel, we would say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's a good prayer to pray. Sometimes we're like the disciples when Jesus said, Oh, you have little faith. Now, of all people, we should have more faith than anyone because of our advantages. And think of our advantages. Think of our advantages here at Calvary Chapel. We get to study the Bible every week. You get to hear Christian radio throughout the week. Good teachers throughout the week. There's Christian bookstores. You have access to so much faith-building material. I have not found as great a faith, no, not in Israel. 
And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now it happened, and we'll end probably with verse 17 tonight. Now it happened the day after that he went into the city called Nain. Now Nain is, oh, let's see, 25, 20 miles um, southwest of Capernaum. Take the Sea of Galilee, go a little bit south, a little bit west, mostly south. You'll, come, you'll get right into Nain. It's up in the hills, not far from Nazareth. Uh, it's a little place. You drive through it, blink an eye, and it's gone. Probably smaller even in Jesus' day. But uh, nonetheless, it's a day's journey. You know, it's 40 minutes by bus. It's a day's journey to walk there. Uh, let's read the story, and we'll make some comment on it. The day after... He went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. So Jesus, his disciples, and a whole bunch of folks. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. And he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And they presented him, he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all. Oh, I can imagine. You can imagine being at a funeral. You would never expect this. For the guy to sit up. And they had a conversation. He started talking. He, what did he say? I, who knows? But it would, I'm sure it was interesting. He began to speak. Fear came upon all. They glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all of Judea and the surrounding region. In ancient Israel... They would bury a person the same day of his death because the hot sun uh, would uh, deteriorate the body very rapidly. Uh, Lazarus was in the grave, and Jesus had unrolled the stone. It had been four days, and the gal said, Come on, Jesus, by now he stinketh, is the King James. There's a foul odor. The body is deteriorated. So they would bury them the same day. They person would die and you didn't have a time to really have the family out. The family would mourn instead of at a cemetery beforehand at the tomb afterwards for three days. Uh, the Jewish belief is that the spirit of the dead person hovers over the tomb for three days and then departs. Not true, it's just a fable they came up with. Now, I get asked, I was asked it this morning after one of the services about cremation. I get asked that. I've had a lot of questions recently about that. Uh, what about cremation? What does the Bible say? Point to me a scripture about cremation. I can't. I can't because the Jews never practiced it. They never believed in it. The Jews buried the person. Now, that doesn't mean they were necessarily right. I don't see anything wrong with cremation. Some churches, some people see something very fundamentally wrong with it. I don't. I think when you're dead, you're out of here. You're dead. 
I don't care what they do. This body afterwards, whether they burn it or bury it or whatever, put it in an old sack, it doesn't matter. When I'm out of here, I don't care. So what about the resurrection? If you burn it, what, what, you know, how are you going to raise? Listen, do you think God is incapable of finding the molecules in whatever state they're in? Or wherever they are, if you scatter them across New Zealand, that he's not going to find them? You think this is a dilemma for God? I've heard it put this way. Cremation will do in 37 minutes what it takes nature 37 years to accomplish. It just does it quicker. I don't think it matters. Because your spirit is released from your body. You're in heaven, man. Are you going to be worried about your body in heaven? You get a new one at Resurrection Day. Who cares? But, hey, if you hold that view and it's very important to you, you know, that's, that's your thing. I just want to set some of you free who are worried because a relative you knew has been cremated and now what? You know, it's a dilemma for God. How, how's that person going to get resurrected? No problem. There were four meetings at Nain this day. First of all, there were two crowds that met together. The crowd that Jesus brought and the crowd at this funeral. And it seems that they approached the gate at the same time. They bury outside the city, and so they're walking out of the gate. Jesus is coming inside the city gate, and they met. This is called God's providence. I believe that God has a timetable. I believe in providence. I don't in just a blanket form, but God's control of my life. That nothing happens by accident. I believe that. I think God can just put the pieces together. And this is perfect timing. It takes all day to get there, and they happened to meet at the right time. God wanted that meeting. How often we worry about our agenda and our life. God has his timetable. It's not out of control. Chill. Two crowds. Now, two different crowds. One crowd with Jesus is rejoicing for what they've seen and what they've heard. Another crowd is lamenting. One crowd is going into the city. The other crowd is going out to the cemetery where they would bury. I think in a spiritual sense, that's true of every person. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you hold dear to him and follow him, you're on your way to a city that has foundations, whose maker and builder is God, eternal in the heavens. If you don't believe in Jesus, you've rejected him, you're already in the cemetery. You're dead while you live. You're dead in your trespasses and your sins. And the outlook is bleak. Now that can change as it did here. But the first meeting was between two crowds. Secondly, there was a meeting between two sons. The son, the dead son of a widow and the son of God. One was physically dead but destined to live. One was alive and was destined to die. The son, the unique son of God, had the power to raise physically this dead son of the widow. Now, the widow was really in a bind. She was a widow. She didn't have a husband to provide for. The laws of widowdom in that day uh, were usually not kept among Israel, uh, in that part of Galilee especially. So to have her only son who could provide financially for her as dead, she was bereft of everything. What's she going to do? She'll probably be a beggar in that city. Jesus had compassion for her. And the unique Son of God was there to heal. 
two sons met. Thirdly, two sufferers met. The man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, acquainted with grief, and a woman of sorrow. That's why Jesus could relate. He had come to take upon him the sin of the world. And he had such compassion because of the suffering that he underwent in his lifetime and was going to undergo uh, toward his death. And then finally, there were two enemies that met. Jesus and the enemy of death. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last enemy is death. It is quite an enemy. It's the enemy of mankind. Think, consider of all of the pain death has caused in this world. The sorrow and the pain that death causes every single day. The people that weep and mourn over the loss of loved ones. But Jesus conquered the last enemy. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? So Jesus, raising this kid from the dead, foreshadowed his own resurrection, foreshadowed everybody's resurrection. You will rise again. Everybody will have a resurrection, some unto death and some unto life. I think what Jesus did here, though, is a beautiful foreshadow of what Jesus Christ will do at his second coming, his return. He will reunite those who have gone before to heaven, those who have died in Christ, with those of us who are alive. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. It says that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain, I'll slow down, they're interpreting in sign, and I know that I just ramble sometimes. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazo, taken away by force immediately, to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with him. There'll be a reunion someday. Just like this boy was taken by Jesus and said, Here, Mom, here's your boy. One day Jesus will reunite those who have died in Christ and those who are alive and remain. Man, I can't wait. I can't wait. Oh, we have fun now. But what an awesome meeting that's going to be. What an awesome meeting that's going to be. Fear came upon all. They glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen. God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all of Judea and the surrounding region. Now, there's still more to come. Next week, we'll cover it. This chapter is filled with grief and compassion. And the next grief that we'll uncover is the grief of John the Baptist. Very confused, very disillusioned spiritually. Ever been there? Ever wonder if God is even fulfilling his promises? Ever wonder if God is even caring about you, if God is even on time? Well, you're in good company. Many before you have as well. And Jesus is there to meet that need as well. We'll see that next time. Lord, we consider tonight, we've considered so many things, the words and the work of your wonderful Son. Words of life, words of encouragement, words of warning about building our foundation on something solid rather than shifting sand. Lord, there are many in this world all around us. We look around and 
their house looks so beautiful and so secure and their life is so together and they have this and they have that. And we can become like David who became envious when he saw the prosperity of the wicked until he considered their end. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't look around at other people and be jealous of their lifestyle because if they don't have Jesus, they have zip. I pray, Lord, that we would build on something solid, a foundation that will never, ever fail. Lord, I know that in this assembly there are many who are bearing forth fruit, and there are also more that you want to bear forth fruit. There are some who have heard, but they're being choked up by the cares of this world. There's others who have heard. They've been real happy and emotional, but times of trial and testing has caused them to drift away. There are some, Lord, that hear and they harden their hearts and they don't ever want to do anything about it. What a sad, sad thing that is. We simply pray, Lord, you're bigger than all of that. You're able to convince a person that you as their Lord and their God want to become their Savior. We pray that you'd convince anyone who's in this auditorium tonight who's built on anything less than a solid rock foundation of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that comes by faith and repentance. I pray that tonight would be the time that the house gets built on the rock. We know, Lord, judgment will inevitably come. We want to be found in the right place. I pray, Lord, that as you sweep through this auditorium, that you would individually touch those who do not yet have that sweet relationship with you and bring them to yourself tonight. Cause them to make a commitment tonight. 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 Tonight.